Hi, everyone. This is Maria Wells with the Savvy Millennial Podcast. We're a community dedicated to ambitious and successful millennial entrepreneurs. And today with us, we have Aiden Heinzman, who is a social entrepreneur and a founder of Hello Earth. It's a company dedicated to creating and building story-driven consumer brands that support social and environmental causes. In response to COVID-19, their team has launched two brands to help those most affected. First one is Life Crates, a food program assisting low-income seniors. And the second one is Love Your Neighbor. It's a consumer-facing zero-profit brand allowing anyone or any group to directly donate personal protective equipment to the frontline workers. Before that, he was previously a founder and a director of MySimple. It's an everyday underwear label that donates a pair to the homeless with every pair purchased. And before that, he was the director of Heroes in Black, an organization dedicated to supporting homeless and at-risk youth. So a lot of entrepreneurial experience. And with that, welcome Aiden. Hi, Aiden. How are you? I'm so good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I am good. Thank you for agreeing to be on the podcast and uh, providing such an extensive bio. I love everything you've been (laughs) up to for the past, uh, I don't know, how many years have you been doing all of this? So this all started back when I first kind of got to Toronto uh, after I left Vancouver and UBC uh, back in 2014, 2015. So January 5th, 2015 is kind of when I consider my start date. So actually not that long, just five years. Yeah, yeah. Anything beyond that, I wouldn't have been an adult yet. <laughs> Let's start with a little bit of background for people and listeners who don't really know you or the brands you're creating right now. How did you start? Any details you would like to share with us? When I graduated from high school, I kind of decided to go out to the University of British Columbia. I had no idea what I wanted to do at the time. And so I just went into um, an economics political science degree. But uh, quickly, I realized I wasn't actually going to class. I just found myself in downtown Vancouver trying to meet with as many founders as I could possibly meet. I started to understand that Vancouver wasn't the right city for me. So I ended up leaving the University of British Columbia. And I came over to Toronto, where I took a couple classes at Ryerson. But it was in this ecosystem that a, a very impactful uh, event happened that I witnessed and kind of started me on the path to figure out what I wanted to spend my time doing on our earth. And so on January 5th of 2015, I was walking at the corner of Young and Dundas, and I came across a, a scene where these medics were taking away this uh, gentleman's body from the bus station. And I later found out he was 61 years old. He was wearing a t-shirt and jeans. And that night, it was negative 18 degrees outside. And this kind of had this profound effect on me where I started to question where we went wrong as his neighbors, uh, individuals walking by where we didn't call someone, and where our country went wrong to not be able to interject and get him off of the streets um, or help him in any way where he was in a position to not be prepared to battle the, the winter nights. This kind of started to shift my mindset around how can I dedicate my time and resources to helping others. I was very fortunate growing up where our grandparents wanted to help show us as much of the world as possible. And so we would go on these cultural immersion trips. And I always had a very lucky understanding of how fortunate we have always been. And so this was kind of what I was looking for. It was a call to action that I could start really getting passionate about. And so I first started a nonprofit around trying to help homeless individuals during the winter time. But I quickly understood that what we were doing where we were building these polypropylene and polystyrene thermally insulated sleeping mats to allow individuals to go and sleep in more sheltered locations. But we didn't have a lot of money, but we had a lot of time. And so shifting from how can we stretch a dollar to impact 
it's we started to think how can we stretch a minute to have the greatest impact and in the homeless population we decided that was around homeless youth uh, so we figured out that if a homeless youth is, is on the streets for about two years, they're 90% more likely to be homeless the rest of their life. So that's where we tried to have the largest impact. And that's when I, I joined an amazing man named Matt Black and his organization, Heroes in Black, uh, to empower and employ uh, homeless and at-risk youth. And then the, the second very impactful event happened in my life where one of the programs we were running was, was taking homeless uh, youth from Covenant House and we took 23 of them to Toronto Island with a bunch of my Ryerson and U of T friends. And on the island provided us lunch. And then we just played volleyball and we had laughs and we drank lemonade. Um, and at the end of the day, the 16-year-old girl came up to Matt and I and she said, I need to say thank you. And we're like, no, no, you don't need to thank us. This is really no problem. She goes, no, you don't understand. This morning, I wanted to kill myself. When you wake up every single day and you don't feel like you bring anything to the world and that you are constantly a burden on society. You feel like you shouldn't exist in society. But the warm memories of today are enough to make me want to fight a little bit longer. And then she just walked away. And that was a very important experience for me because all we did was we provided a smile. And that was enough to change the path that someone else is on. And so I really started to understand how a minute could be very impactful and how often the simplest things have the most profound positive impacts on others. And so then I had to go back and I wanted to understand how I can now stretch a dollar to have an impact, but maintaining that idea around simplicity. A couple of weeks later, we're on the streets handing out clothing and 11 out of 13 people would ask me, hey, bud, do you have any clean underwear? And it turns out socks and underwear are the two most requested items by homeless shelters. And so I started doing some research and um, I found this amazing company in New York City called Bumbas. They do over $100 million in revenue now, but they donate socks to the homeless for every per purchase. I think they've donated around 40 million pairs in the last eight years. And so they were doing socks and so I was going to do underwear. I started a small underwear label called My Simple and uh, for every pair of purchase, we donate a pair. And then at this time, I started to really get involved in the kind of social impact brand space um, with a focus on consumer brands. And when I, I started attending a conference in LA called the Heart Series, which brings together all of these socially conscious brands, I met so many incredible founders that they've been heads down. They grew their, you know, a fiance team grew their organic soy candle brand to 900,000 revenue doing all of these small markets. And they didn't know what to do next, right? They don't know how to expand their time beyond what they currently have and how to take their brand to the next level. And so at this time, I was consuming everything I could find on sourcing, on um, digital marketing, on social marketing, earned marketing, brand content. And I, I built out a pretty strong network. And so I started to try to give advice. And at the end of the conference, I had 11 requests to do consulting, but I was like, I'm so sorry, I don't have the time to do consulting. And so I left the conference with this notch in my stomach where a good life is if you can live it one-to-one, -one, right? You take as much as you give back. But fundamentally, I think we will never build a better world if we all live a one-to-one -one life. Some of us need to, as many people as we can possibly empower, need to start living a one-to and infinite, right? So where a minute of our time input can have much more impact because the time is the one thing that we can't get more of. If I wanted to have a large impact on the world, then I needed to start creating the infrastructure that empowers other people to do good. Because if I can 10x someone else's impact, and then in turn, they can 5x someone else's impact, and then I can do that to multiple people. And then my impact on the world isn't 10x my time, it's 10x times everyone that I can help. 
And so I kind of went back to the drawing board and I started putting together a new business plan around a company. It's the model's called a startup studio. Our goal is to create companies that tackle certain problems that are important to us and support others that are creating companies that are, are helping the world. And so that's kind of where Hello Earth came from. So at our heart, we're both a venture builder and a venture studio. So we create our own brands under a family that we all tackle different environmental and social issues. And then when we come across founders that are also doing the same, we can bring their brand into our family. And so we're building this kind of family of brands. And that's kind of where we are now, just pre-COVID and then COVID, a couple other things kind of popped up. I love it. Thank you for sharing. As you were talking about your experience, I got goosebumps on multiple occasions. So I guess the first thing is thank you for all the work that you're doing. I mean, I admire your drive of how you didn't just join an organization as a volunteer and, you know, donated your time, but what prompted you to actually create companies or create something different? Why not to join some organizations that are already out there helping people? From 10th grade until second university, I probably read every single article posted on TechCrunch. I would, I would sit there at 11 a.m. hitting refresh until a new article came up. And so I always had this obsession with starting a company. But I think it fundamentally goes a little bit earlier than that where I love to build things. When I was 13, my, my friends had these dirt bikes. I grew up in New York. I'm originally Canadian, but we grew up in New York. And so when I was younger, a lot of my friends in their Connecticut houses had all these dirt bikes. I really wanted to get a dirt bike. I love bikes. I, I love motorbikes. Um, but my parents wouldn't let me have a bike. And so uh, my parents were divorced and I'd ask my mom for an engine and I'd ask my dad for a frame and then my mom for a fork. And then for Christmas, I would get some wheels. And I ended up building, um, it was called a Honda CT70. So I love that process, right? The process of taking multiple parts and putting them together and, and creating something. And that's what a brand is to me, right? It's the ability to bring together incredible people that are so good at what they do to create products that are better than anything out there that stand for something, that have a purpose. And that entire journey, seeing something go from an idea to something you can touch, I think to me is the most exciting thing that I could be a part of. I love it. So then in terms of the brands that you are putting under your umbrella, you said that you create some and then you find entrepreneurs. Is there something specific that you're looking for in the entrepreneurs themselves or in their businesses, their models? How do you make a decision who to bring on into the team? It just comes down to essentially the person around authenticity, the the reason why they're doing what they're doing. And then when it comes down to the company, it's how each party feels with each other. There's right now, there's no specific model. Got it. So then in terms of, I'm sure a lot of people, uh, especially right now, trying to figure out what to do next. You know, the COVID Mm -hmm. uh, creates a lot of struggles, but it also creates a lot of opportunities. And I mean, a lot of people are trying to maybe build a business, figure out how to move from an employee to a solopreneur or entrepreneur. What would you think would be the opportunities in the new market that's coming up in 2020? Where should people look for those opportunities and what should they be paying attention to? So I was listening to this podcast around the organization called Donors Choose. And so Donors Choose is this fantastic platform that allows teachers to post projects saying, you know, hey, I need to buy three whiteboards to be able to teach math. So they post a project, they say, I need $330. And then anyone in the community can help them fund that project. And in the last 12 years, Donors Choose just passed a uh, billion dollars going across the platform. But 
what he was saying is in the 2008 recession, they saw the average amount donated decrease, but the average number of donations dramatically increased. And they're seeing the same now with COVID. What is absolutely incredible is when the whole entire world starts to hurt, right? And you can see it's something that's affecting you is also affecting your neighbor and the person that you pass by the street. Humans are more inclined to go and help those who have less than them, even if they don't have that much themselves during these times. And so the world's desire to just help others right now is probably anything we've seen in our lifetime so far. And so the real opportunities is to be able to leverage that desire to help, to magnify what you can do as an individual, but more importantly, build relationships that can last beyond the COVID times, right? Because I think the longer we go on into the 2000s, people don't want to work with people that they don't like, right? And so building strong relationships that are built on trust and authenticity, you can create both personal and business relationships that will, will last far into the future. All of the work that we're doing around COVID relief, whether it's uh, getting food boxes to at seniors, or if it's getting medical equipment to frontline workers, there's so many incredible relationships that are coming up that we'll be able to leverage far into the future that will help all of our brands. And so I think using this time to work with others and build a community to help others is the biggest opportunity that we've probably been exposed to so far in our lifetime. There's never been as much time as there has been right now where individuals are okay to go and jump on a Zoom video call, right? And just get to know one another. All you have to do is ask. And that's what it kind of comes down to. That's kind of how I got you here. In terms of building connections and relationships within communities, would you say it's easy right now to build them abroad and another market? Or are you focusing right now only on local connections? What is your strategy? And uh, where do you see opportunities in the interconnectedness in this world? It just depends on what you want to do. I think there's opportunity on both sides. So for Life Crates, for example, we have this network of community members, whether they're volunteers, you know, showing up on a Sunday morning, to pack up their cars with boxes and deliver them to the, to our participants, or it's you know um, Matt's no frills in Cabbage Town, uh, allowing us to use his suppliers to order food, or Sofina Foods up in Aura, where we just picked up two thousand kilograms today. Especially during this time, there is a very strong sense of local community, but that local community also goes into a national pride. Right, right now in Canada all of Canada is suffering from the effects of COVID, not just our one area. So what we've seen with our other project, which is called Love Your Neighbor, which allows anyone to donate PPE equipment to frontline workers. You know, we have individuals that are living in Michigan and their sister is a nurse in New Orleans. And so they're working with us to onboard the New Orleans hospital to be able to get equipment donated because they need everything. They need not just face masks, they need gowns and eye protection, all kinds of stuff. And so there are definitely opportunities both, but personally, my favorite thing to do or what, what makes me most happy is focusing on the local because at the end of the day, humans still crave that person-to-person interaction. And if you can build a really strong local network, especially at times when you're at home, when you're able to leave and go and start pursuing other opportunities, that local network will be really there to help you and hold you up. I love it. So then in terms of finding your volunteers and finding the items that you put in those boxes, can you talk more about the process? Because it's probably not that easy to find people who are willing to donate their time. It's also not easy to find all the items. How did you go about it and obviously build these two companies in a short amount of time? 
you have to take a step back and look at the resources that you already have at your disposal. Um, so over the last six years, I've built a pretty strong Toronto community and, and network. And it's not just me, right? There's several people involved in Life Crates. And so together, we were able to kind of go to the network that we had and figure out, you know, okay, we need partners to be able to drive, right? We have tons of, of friends that have the ability to drive and, and they have tons of friends. And so through the content that they've been producing, more and more people have been, you know, saying, hey, I have a car, I would love to come and help out. So now we actually have too many volunteers on the, on the delivery side, but our next fulfillment is 400 crates. So we need a lot of cars. It's going to come in useful. Are you looking for more help in products? I mean, I guess another way to maybe engage all the, all the listeners. What else are you looking for? What's your wish list? As soon as we identified what we had access to, which was you know, a strong community of friends, then it was, okay, what do we need? So we brought in a bunch of nutritionists. They went to you know, a whole bunch of suppliers' websites and built out a nutritionally balanced 70,000-calorie box. But we needed a supplier, right? And so what we simply did was we went to LinkedIn. We typed in uh, no frills. Um, I came across a, a gentleman who's an owner of No Frills in Cabbage Town. His name is Matt. We walked in and the woman at the door who was um, helping people line up was his wife. And we just talked to her. Um, and then ever since then, you know, now we go to Matt and Angie on a Monday and we give them a delivery list and they order directly from their suppliers. All that took was, again, just asking, right? We just showed up and we said, hey, we need your help. What can you help us with? And they would say they, they just absolutely love to help. Um, and same thing for Sofina Foods. And then, of course, the more people that get involved and the more you do, it starts to snowball. So today, I just picked up 400 bottles of Voss water because Voss wanted to put bottles into the crates. And that came through a friend of mine who's an Olympic figure skater who's sponsored by them. And they saw when he was helping us out on Sunday, they saw his story on Instagram and they said, you know, hey, we'd love to help out as well. Um, and so it's once you build a strong community, their community wants to help out and it creates this incredibly powerful kind of snowball effect. And then people and companies, they just donate the products. You don't have to pay for those products, correct? They are donating to all of the boxes. So yes and no. We work with corporate sponsors. So we brought in several thousand dollars through corporate sponsorship that offsets a lot of the box costs. And then we have um, individual partners. So we've raised about $12,000 just through individuals. And then we also have sponsor partners. So I can't name exactly who it is based on privacy, but we're doing a $40,000 partnership for 600 boxes uh, delivered to uh, their community of uh, low-income seniors. The food itself is purchased, but since we are working directly with different brands themselves, as well as suppliers, whole suppliers, the cost is at least 40% less than what an individual could buy it for at the grocery store. This is incredible. I mean, I love the systems that you've built and the amount of work and effort you've put into it. Definitely not easy. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. When you started saying that you were reading TechCrunch and refreshing until you get a new article, I thought you were going to build something like, you know, uh, the coolest app, the next Tinder. You're building something that requires a lot of manual effort. As much as you, you can delegate a lot of things to other people, it still requires you to be in the front line to build those relationships, to ask for help. So that's amazing. Absolutely. I think you stepped on a very important point, which is no matter what you do, it takes a lot of time when it comes to partnerships to come up with one good partnership. It might take talking to 10 bad partners, right? Or it's just not quite the right fit until you come across the one group that really feels right and fits is the right puzzle piece and the puzzle that you're missing. It's a success is a numbers game. You know, you got to spend a lot of hours Absolutely. to get that overnight success. 
hundred percent. It's uh, one of the most famous cases out of Y Combinator. If everyone knows it, Airbnb. Uh, I think they talked to 76 investors before they got one yes. 76. And the only because of the company that they were building at the time, it's because of how clever they were at getting money to pay off a credit card. Probably a lot of the times you find yourself either stressed or you know overwhelmed with all the things going on. And I assume these two brands were built right before COVID or during COVID. So it was a very fast initiative. How do you mm-hmm. deal with constant anxiety and things probably don't always go as planned? How do you manage it? I've spent a lot of time thinking about how to deal with things not going as planned. And the number one kind of thought that I'd like to keep in my head is, yes, it didn't go as planned, but you can't change that now. So what's next, right? If you dwell on the past too much, then that affects your ability to do something better in the future. But it's really, really important to be okay with what happens so you can understand and learn from it. And then the second thing that's really also important is to not be afraid to lean on others and ask for help, right? If you try to take on the world by yourself, no matter what you're doing, that's going to be incredibly overwhelming. But no one built anything by themselves. And I think that's really important to remember. Everything great that's ever been created has been a team effort. And so the best thing you can always do as an individual is to understand what you are really, really good at. It doesn't matter if someone else is better than you, but it's what you are best at. Whatever your strong suits are and whatever your weak suits are, find people to complement your weak suits. And that is the best way that you can move forward and to try to stay stress-free and with less anxiety is to simply surround yourself with people that can help you problem solve. It's amplify your strengths and just manage your weaknesses. I, I love it. It's exactly what you're doing. Now, do you have any tips or tricks on, you know, I don't know, maybe you go on meditation retreats. Maybe you have a routine of a certain sort every morning and night to help you stay grounded. You know, after talking to you about all the things that you're doing, I'm sure a few things are there not under control, but you're just calm. I won't lie. I am incredibly lucky. And I I understand that not a lot of people have found this yet, but I absolutely love what I do. Um, But I also think it's important to take a step back and to not think about it. Luckily, how my company is structured is we have several brands and several projects in the works. And so when something is, you know, frustrating in one of the projects that allows me to go and work on something else. And so that distraction helps your subconscious kind of work on the problem in the back end. But for me, the most, most, most important thing is the outdoors. It's being able to get outside, fresh air, sun. I love sun so much. Last year, I had to buy a light alarm, so I'd be woken up to the sun. And then also physical activities, tennis and soccer, as well as family and friends, kind of most important things. So and what have you been doing during COVID? I got back to run. That's, that's kind of the main highlight. I have an empty bedroom, so I'd like to juggle my soccer ball in that bedroom. It's uh, interesting times these days, interesting times. It is. It is. (laughs) Now, in terms of, I guess, the people, advisors, I mean, you have a lot of friends. You're very well connected around the world in Toronto. What books, resources do you read, consume, and people you follow to get maybe new ideas, to learn more? What do you do to make yourself grow? Every single person that I work with in my main holding company today, I did not know one year ago. I think it's really, really important to 
give yourself a process and for everyone it's going to be different, but a process that allows you to come across new people that excite you. For me, honestly, a whole bunch of it starts with podcasts. I consume probably three hours of podcasts a day, making breakfast in the morning, making lunch, dinner, going on a run, driving the car. Uh, so podcasts, some of the podcasts. Specifics. Yes, specifics. Um, so my very favorite podcast, my two favorites are How I Built This with Guy Raz and Masters of Scale with Reid Hoffman. Those are the kind of the business ones. A fantastic one for the consumer goods space is Well Made. That's by Lumi, which is a uh, packaging company of Los Angeles. It's also good to have a, a variety of podcasts. I also like listening to The Daily. But what I do simply is when I hear a name of a company that I didn't know before or a person, um, or if it's simply the guest, I go and I add them on LinkedIn right away. And I have notifications set up. So if they accept my request, it pops up on my phone. And the second they accept my request, I, I go and I reach out to them and then I try to get on a phone call and then I try to go from the phone call into a coffee meeting and then build relations like that. For example, my, my CFO, he used to be part of the financial team for Loot Crate. Loot Crate was one of the fastest growing companies in Inc. 500 history. And I heard a, a podcast that Chris, the founder, was doing and he said, we would not have been able to grow to $100 million in revenue as fast as we did if it wasn't for the fantastic financial team behind us. They knew exactly when a dollar entered our accounts. They split that dollar up. And within 24 hours, it was buying more inventory or paying for shipping labels. And so I went to LinkedIn and I found the people behind that kind of financial team, reached out a year and a half ago now. I, I had a, a phone call with Frank first time. And then we kind of kept up over email. And then I last year, I actually went and lived in LA for most of the year. We met up for a coffee. And then in Vancouver over Christmas, we were both there at the same time. So we met up, him and his husband met up with me and we had another coffee and we kind of built this relationship. And then at that point, you know, he was like, you know, okay, you won't stop. So now he's starting to give me time. <laughs> but we had that rapport before. But after that third meeting, he started introducing me to people. So my new business partners now are actually came from an introduction that he gave to me. And then that woman introduced me to another gentleman. And then that gentleman introduced me to another gentleman. And now this gentleman is my partner. And so it's incredibly important to be as, as genuine as possible during all these interactions because people do want to help others. And when they think that someone they know can help you, most of the time they will be okay with introducing that people. And so my business partner came from four introductions after LinkedIn reached out to a gentleman I came across after hearing his name on a podcast. So you just have to kind of build your own different methods of finding people that you find interesting and putting the time in to try to get in contact with them. My, one of my very first advisors when I kind of first started this was uh, the CMO of Gymshark. And it, it took 11 different reach outs to get on a call with him. He didn't answer all of them. And he, on the very last time, he did say, I do apologize. I get a lot of reach outs. So some go under the radar. And so I think it's also very important to remember that just because you don't hear back doesn't mean it's a no, right? No answer is still a maybe. And so always pursue it especially if it's important to you, until you fundamentally get that no. A good example is Ev Williams from Medium and Twitter. He says he never answers a cold reach out from an entrepreneur until that entrepreneur did it seven times because it shows that they are passionate and kind of understand what it takes to be able to build really strong communities and relationships. So how do you deal with the no? Like, what do you say in your first LinkedIn message? Because there's only so many characters that you can put in there to make mm -hmm. sure that you get their attention, but they don't feel overwhelmed. What do you say to people? First, it's really important to show them that you put in the time to understand why they might be useful to you. First of all, introduce yourself, where you came across them, 
and what part of their background is interesting to you and then introduce what you're doing, right? And so if there is a connection, then they're more likely to want to help you. And right after that, I always start with a call because a lot of times these people are not in the city that I'm in. A list of all the individuals that I've come in contact with over the last year in the cities that they are located in. So every time I go to a city, I make sure I reach out to everyone that's super important to me and try to try to sit down with them just to continue to build um, relationships. And, and they're incredibly interesting people. Uh, so it's just a fun conversation in general. There's been a lot of no responses, but I haven't actually gotten a no yet. How long is your first call and what do you talk about? A little bit over an hour, probably an hour and a half until then one person has to hang up. Oh, and it's just it's, an hour. So it's not a 15 minute <laughs> phone call. It's not a 30 no, minute phone no, it's call. A, it's a long one. It's a full kind of deep dive. I personally believe in order to get the most value out of someone else, the best thing you can always do is to be as valuable as possible. And whether that's you're meeting someone at a networking event or if it's through a conversation, in order for you to understand how you can be incredibly valuable to someone else, you have to know as much about that person as possible. And who doesn't love talking about themselves? And so I try to listen as much as possible and to talk as little as possible for as long as possible in the beginning of the conversation. And what that really allows me to do is to understand where their passions are, right? What gets them interested? You know, are they feeling like they want to take on a side project or they're actually really interested in digital marketing? That helps me start to craft my narration of what I do when they go and, and go and ask me what I do uh, because you now have more information. And so you are able to create a much more engaging conversation if you just listen as long as possible and ask really pointed questions before going into what you do. So always try to make it about the other person as much as possible. And then at the end of it, of course, when you do your follow-up email, you now have a lot of information where, you know, oh, would you like an introduction to so-and-so? I, I think you guys would actually have a fantastic conversation. So a lot of my partners, they run different kinds of agencies, whether they're email agencies or SEO agencies or web design agencies. And so when I bring on a new agency partner, they can all help each other because they have clients that would benefit from each other's work. And so I try to connect them all after the conversation because that shows also right off the bat that I am willing to open up my network to them and create value to them with no strings attached, just to do it to help others. And that creates a really authentic relationship between two people. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing all your secrets. I don't know if they're going to be working anymore, if all of us are going to be using them, but thank you. <laughs> the end of the day, it's, it's the more people that can succeed, the better world we'll have. I love it. That's the attitude. Now, what does the future hold for Aiden? What's next? So my entire company structure is technically called a dual entity plus a syndicate. So what that means is the first entity is our holding company where we incorporate new brands. The second entity is what's called a sidecar fund. So we have a pool of cash on the side that we can then keep our pro rata, our voting rights on the brands that we start as they start to grow, as well as when we come across other brands, we can invest in them and bring them into our brand portfolio. And then the third part is the syndicate. So each of our brands has a co-founder CEO, and then every brand we try to help has a CEO. So the CEO is, is actually our most important asset. So the best thing I can do to ensure the life and prosperity of that brand is to connect them with as many smart individuals as possible to be their advisors and mentors. So that's where the syndicate comes on. So when the brand goes through the first raise outside of our funding, they're able to do it through a network of very successful entrepreneurs that then become advisors and mentors to the CEO. So that's what we're kind of getting ready to launch in the next couple of months, which is our sidecar fund, as well as our angel syndicate. 
That sounds very interesting and very complicated. How did you come up with this? Have you done this before? Do you know a lot of companies who operate under the same model? So this is a very new model. I built this model picking and choosing between kind of four different studio models that I came across. And then in conversations with a, a group that I belong to called the Global Startup Studio Network, that's when the kind of name came to it. So I actually built this model over an 18-month period, kind of just after conversations and research, that model just kind of came out um, over 18 months. So it wasn't just kind of an idea. It took a lot of adjustments. Um, there's several different startup studio methods out there or models. The dual entity plus a syndicate is, is the stronger one um, that's kind of come out in the last three months or so. It's just a lot more upfront work that needs to go into it because you need to build a team that is going to be able to help all of your brands grow. Then you need to actually create those brands. You need to develop a very strong investor network on the side of angels, as well as go and fundraise and operate a fund on the side. So it's a much more complicated model. But when it starts to work, we now have the ability to ideate a brand, bring on incredible investors and mentors for the CEO, have a very strong team behind it. And when the company starts to scale, we have the funds to be able to put right back into it so that founders aren't wasting time fundraising themselves and can actually put more time into growing the company. Because what a lot of startups CEOs are considered is full-time fundraisers. And I don't think that's incredibly healthy for the brand itself. So as our commitment to all the companies that we work with is we're trying to take all of the time for fundraising out of the equation and put that back into the building the brands themselves. So if we can build trust with the investor network, that means any brand we work with then gets our trust and gets the trust of our network. And so hopefully we'll be able to take away so many of the countless days and hours spent on fundraising and pitching um, and just be able to make it a lot more efficient. I like this model a lot. I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs who are listening do spend a lot of time fundraising and sometimes get nowhere. So I think there's a few things and tips to learn from you. Now, what do you think is the biggest lesson you've learned over the past 12 months? I think the biggest lesson comes down to COVID. And it's always try to have the greatest understanding of the resources you have at your disposal and just to have a good sense of that. So that no matter what happens, whether it's an opportunity um, you can take advantage of that opportunity, or it's a hiccup, a speed bump. You can make sure that that doesn't derail your progress, especially something I'm going to carry out of this time is to always be mindful and cognizant of the resources we have at our disposal so that we can do both of those. What are your plans for the next little while? What are you going to do with uh, life? Are you working 24-7 nowadays? Yes. So we have these kind of two COVID response projects going on. Then I'm launching two other brands outside of that, which are taking up quite a bit of time. I'm doing consulting for three other brands. So helping them with my network to help them build out their assets. In March of last year, I got on a plane. I flew to LA. So I moved yep. to LA for the year last year. Came back for a couple conferences. That's where we met. Like it took me a year, but I found my CMO, my CFO, you know, kind of all those those high level positions. And my CMO what used to be the director of marketing at eBay. So I'm like, I've been very lucky to bring on some very amazing people, but they were all in New York City. And so the more time I started spending in New York City, I quickly realized that New York is a city that no matter where you are in the world, if you want to become the best in your industry, nine times out of 10, that job is probably in New York City. And so you have people from around the world dreaming of going to New York City. The 
caliber of people there are unlike any other city I've been in. And so and that's where And then it's a strategy just reaching out to people and asking them exactly. for a call yeah. coffee. That's like <laughs> the best way to find awesome humans. You also have to make sure you put together a lot of different networks or spider webs that bring in information, right? So have you ever heard of a company called Jinling? Jinling. No. They recently changed about a year ago. They are now also a brand starting brands. Um, which is good for us because it proves out the model. But they were the world's most prolific branding team for CPG companies. Like they did the branding for companies like Smile Direct Club, Warby Parker, Everlane, right? Those are all Ginlane brands. And so I met the founder and Ginlane for about two years now. And I've been following their work and also their newsletter. And so I saw that they were doing an in-person event um, and I've been wanting to get to Emmett for a long time. So about two weeks before this event, actually, I got through to him on LinkedIn. And then he gave me his email. So we kind of had like two or three correspondences. Um, but then I saw from their general company email that his holding company was doing a fireside chat with someone. And Emmett was the being the moderator for the chat. And that was in two days. And so I went to the website and there was a waiting list, unfortunately. But an hour before the event, they offered me a ticket. And so I ran over the event. And I finally met Emmett. And um, now Emmett's helping us bring on our chief design officer, which is fantastic because his design team and network is the best in the world. And he's also the smartest guy that I've ever met. So it's also really important to make sure you're taking as a lot of information as possible just so you can take advantage of opportunities. I love it. Ah, oh, this is crazy. Okay, hold on. How do you spell Jinling? Uh, G-I-N-L-A-N-E. The website is no longer up because they've pivoted, but I think some of their backlinks might still be up. So let's go to jinlane.com slash work. If you just Google Jinlane, there'll be a bunch of articles about them. So the two biggest branding agencies in the world, yeah, they took it down. So it's patternbrands.com is their new company, but Jinlane and then Red Antler, they're both based on New York City. They're the two big branding agencies. You know, a brand with them costs 500K. It's like the rule of thumb is you're a CPG brand. You just raised your series A you go to one of these guys. <laughs> Interesting. So if I would want to want to start a brand right now, I don't know what mm-hmm. it is, but what would you think should it be? Like in the current landscape 2020, what should be the brand that I can start? I think there's two things that are going to be really important, especially after COVID moving forward. The first is sustainability. So consumers now are going to be more than ever, actively looking for sustainability in the brands. I think a lot of inauthentic brands are going to die off and a lot of authentic brands are going to succeed a little bit more during COVID and post-COVID. The second piece is we entered into a all-time high um, in January around paid media, right? Paid media is so expensive. You can't go and start a lollipop brand, right? And raise a million dollars and say, we're going to put $500,000 in the Facebook ads. That doesn't work. It's too expensive now. In 2012, it worked, right? And that's how Dollar Shave Club and MeUndies grew so freaking fast is because their CAC was so low, 4.7 times lower than what it would be today. So what's going to be incredibly important and where the social cause aspect comes into it, taking a story content-driven approach to the brand is what we call earned media, right? And so if you do things that others naturally want to share and talk about, whether that's customers, people that see your advertisements or the press then you're going to have a lot more attention itself. And so you can go and produce a $20,000 documentary around 
access to clean drinking water, right, over a, a 15 minute YouTube video. And that can get way more impressions than if you actually give that to your customers, right? Be like, you know, hey, you know, one of our brands is a coffee brand. Every cup of coffee you brew donates 36 cups of clean drinking water with our partner's charity water, right? And so as the brand develops, that's a story, right? There's, we're building new wells, we're helping more people, we're creating attention to the individuals that our customers are directly impacting. Those stories then become something that those customers want to go and talk about. And from a media perspective, are you more likely to support a coffee brand like Starbucks or support this, you know, young brand that just, you know, donated their fifth well and have brought clean drinking water to 10,000 people who's also investing a ton of money into content. So there's already a ton of content for that publication to be able to draw on to help tell their story and amplify it. And so earned media is going to be the most important thing. So that's where the sustainable social aspect of brands is going to come into play and, and be more beneficial from a money perspective. From an opportunity perspective, it's kind of complicated right now because the numbers are very skewed based on COVID. For example, the home space, right? Home gardening, home planting, that space has seen a massive jump, like a 400% increase because of COVID, right? Coffee saw a 97% increase. So there's a whole bunch of industries that saw a massive increase, but I think they're going to fall down quite a bit once people start to get out and go to their regular day lives. But if you're looking for something that you want to do, it's two things. It has to be a product that you yourself really, really love. And it doesn't have to be world-changing, right? It doesn't have to be this new innovation. You just have to be able to do it really, really well, the product, to be able to make the best product you can possibly do, something that you're proud of and that you and your friends would want to consume. Even if other people are doing products just as good, but where you stand out is your ability to do the brand better, to tell the story better, to connect with people better, right? So all the brands that we're going after, they're very simple brands. They're not incredibly innovative. But the products are top quality, the brands are fantastic, and there's story and people care about them. And so when you go and you look into an industry, let's say it's you know hair products, if no one's really kind of gone after the Warby Parker of hair products yet with the quality of brands, communication, visuals, storytelling, then there's an opportunity there, right? One of the things that gets me really excited right now is, is our men's hair product brand, so men's styling creams, because it's currently an industry that exists primarily in the retail space, and no one's gone after the online side of it in a very high quality brand side, right? So it's a very saturated market with tons of people in it already, but no one's doing the online side right yet. And so you go and mix that with the ability to tell and share a story around the impact. Every product consumed removes a pound of ocean plastics. Then you have something that people will want to be a part of. And that's why they don't go to Amazon to buy similar product, right? Exactly. People buy products on Amazon that have no emotion. And a lot of my friends make tens of million dollars a year selling on Amazon. They each have, you know, seven brands. There's so many of these Amazon FBA individuals that they're they're making okay products because in order to stay competitive on Amazon, you have to go for the lowest price possible. So the product quality is going down, right? Even though customers aren't really adapt to it. And so it's, it's quite dangerous. There's quite a lot of individuals that believe brand is making a comeback. You know, convenience came up, but people really care about something to be proud of, right? A brand that, you know, if this brand mentioned you in their story or followed you on Instagram, you would want to yell that to the world, right? Oh my God, like Nike just followed me on Instagram, right? Like that gets people excited. So you need to aspire to be that kind of brand of people. Brands that you know, people would be proud to share with their friends and get excited about, you know, if they talk to them. And Amazon will never have that. And so we're, we're seeing a massive shift towards individual product-based brands, right? So one brand doing one product really, really well. 
And then every product we have in our life will have its own brand. And so you're not going to see a Unilever or a um, Gillette where you have, you know, a brand with 50 products underneath of it. You're going to see the Dollar Shave Club, right? You're going to see the MeUndies. You're going to see the Bumbas. Brands that do a product, they do it really, really well. And it's something that people can be a proud of. So me, myself, will have 10 brands in my life from my coffee to my shaving to my um, hair products, right? To my skin products. Each of those will be a different brand in my life in the future. And I think that's where most people are, are moving towards. What about tech companies? You know, how do they adjust to the new model? I mean, they can have a brand, but do they also put themselves in a position where they can tie themselves to a social cause? That's, that one's a lot harder because tech companies are so broad, right? Like a blockchain company isn't going to tie itself to a social cause. More importantly, a blockchain company's clientele, especially in the financial sector, won't care. I, I do take that back a bit. I do think when you boil it down, decisions, if you have a, a tech product, right? Whether it's a, a SaaS or a platform play, you would be selling that to a person, right? Someone, there is still a human on the other side that needs to make a decision to purchase that product. And so whether it's, you know, a small employee program where your employees are donating their time to help kids learn how to program, right? Or doing presentations on, you know, the future of blockchain at different universities, or, you know, you're donating percent of revenue towards Google Chrome coding with young kids. I think that goes a long way in creating even just a conversation piece, right? Because every conversation you have is not going to be 100% business all the time. So I do think there is an opportunity for technology-based companies. It doesn't necessarily have to be a one-for-one, but to have a good aspect to it. Also, mission purpose, right? Brands that have missions will see a three times lower turnover in employees than brands that don't. Compared to other CPG brands, Warby Parker sees employees staying for four times longer because of, they feel like they're part of a mission. So mission-wise, employees stay longer, but also you'll see a higher conversion on the customer side because they have now connected with you as a salesperson, as a, a technology company. Your product already services their needs, so they're, that's okay. And now compared to the other guy, the other guy is just a product that services their needs. Now you're a human-based team behind it that actually has emotions and cares about other people. So they're more likely to pick you, if that makes sense. I love it. When I start my own company, guess uh, who will be the first person I call? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we're going to take a pivot now. And every guest on the podcast, we usually ask the following three things. A millennial is, a millennial should be, and a millennial is not. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, a millennial is... The first generation to have access to all the information in the world for free. It's simply up to the person to decide what they're going to do with it. Love it. A millennial should be? Someone who lives a net positive life. That is interesting. A millennial is not? (laughs) Someone who sits by. I love that. That is absolutely true. Millennials do not sit by. Okay, so for all our (laughs) listeners, how would be the best way to get in touch with you? LinkedIn, Instagram, where do they find you, learn more about your brands or the company that you're building? So uh, you can go to uh, my, my LinkedIn, which is my name, Aiden Heinzman. Um, you can also get my email from our website at buyhello.earth. And then also my Instagram, uh, we'll respond to all DMs in the Instagram as well, um, which is Aiden Heinzman is just my regular handle. Amazing. Thank you so much, Aiden. You've been fantastic. Good luck with all the new brands and I can't wait to see what's going to be next. Thank you. 
thank you so, so much for having me and uh, stay safe and go enjoy that sun out there and buy a bike. You as well. I will. Thank you. <laughs>